I bought Baddeford with uh, my wife Geeta six years ago or something when Riverford was sold to the staff into employee ownership and, and we moved two miles up the valley and bought this place. I suppose my sort of dream for the place is to best is to have a sort of a Garden of Eden but with rather more than two people in it. <laughs> you know, probably that they are. And hopefully no serpents. Um, that it would be a productive landscape, as in producing food, but also productive in, uh, you know, in providing habitat for wildlife and beauty. And I, I see those, and 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 kind of socially as well. So we have we host quite a number of businesses here um, that are land-based businesses. So there are. You know, this farm, which would have provided employment for half a person, is providing employment for well, already 15, and that will probably double in the, in the next year. You know, I think in the six years since we came here and converted it to organic and changed some of the husbandry practices, it has really come to life. In South Devon, it's rolling hills, you know, thick hedges, relatively small fields, very little level ground. I mean, it lends itself to sheep and beef and dairy. I suppose that's what the area is kind of known for. I mean, there are little pockets that are vaguely suitable for vegetable production, which is what I've spent 35 years doing. Definitely preschool, I was out stomping around the farm in a pair of wellies, and I kind of think it was always destined that that was what I was going to do. I flirted with, you know, the idea of doing other things and I was a management consultant for two years in my early 20s but it was it never really suited me I mean I am a farmer through and through that's what I love doing even though you know I built up a business with 100 million turnover and employing a thousand people I'm actually much more comfortable not running that and back you know stomping around the land again and to me it's an incredibly creative pursuit I mean it is that you are shaping a landscape in a productive way you know you're working with people in that landscape hoping them to that they'll be productive together and then you know the aspect of the business of interacting with the public and selling stuff i guess there is a kind of creativity to that i think capitalism has delivered lots of good things and it's you know i could would never dispute that it's the most effective model in you know liberating innovation and arguably even creativity actually you know so you know it has a lot of things going for it and it has a lot of problems <laughs> as well you know there have been a lot of failures around capitalism and you know climate change which may well kill 90 percent of us is the most obvious one i would say capitalism works best when you give it a simple problem to solve really a well-defined simple problem you know that businesses can get around and innovate and find a solution and people make money along the way and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. If you get to, you know, more complex issues, you know, issues around healthcare, education, social well-being, you know, it, it's an abject failure or anything that requires long-term planning. You might say developing a, you know, a re renewable energy network, you know, definitely requires planning that only government can do. If you then get on to, you know, biodiversity and, and the environment and, and carbon and climate change, you know, the issues are so complex. It is completely hopeless. They're so complex and so long term 
to think that we that a market-based capitalist system is in any way going to be able to deliver the solutions is just patently ridiculous. And that's why I, I just feel so depressed about the state that we're in and why I want to just withdraw to my home and pull up the drawbridge and just try and do something good here at Badderford. Because I just feel, I'm afraid I feel a bit hopeless in this this model, which I don't think many people believe in it, but unfortunately those in power believe in it, you know, the model that the market will provide the solution for anything. It doesn't tie up with what we as human beings, what motivates us, what gets the best out of us, you know, which is undoubtedly, you know, most of us want to do something, want to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. We want a purpose in our life. You know, most of us want to do things well. You know, we want to mar- want to be masters of whatever the things we do. So for me, growing vegetables. And most of us want a degree of sort of autonomy, agency and so on. That's what that's what makes people, that's what motivates people. That's how you get the best out of people. Pay, you know, expecting people to be motivated solely by money is just disastrous. I can, you know, whether it's someone foraging for wild garlic in a wood, pulling leeks, or an accountant or anyone managing a department, whether you give it, it's always a disaster. I started thinking about ownership of the business. I think probably I'm going back to must be about 2000. And I think I came up with employee ownership and we did have a sort of staff council at that time. And I did go along and I said, well, how about if we make Riverford employee owned and we pay for it by you? They all used to get a profit share every year. And I said, you forgo the profit share and, uh, you know, in 20 years time, you'll own the business. <laughs> and, I'll, and they all told me where I could stick that because, you know, most people obviously weren't going to be around in 20 years time. And, why, and it was a sort of I'd got a bit ahead of myself, really, in just thinking about things in a very academic way as opposed to what it actually meant for the people involved. So that was my fair, and I went away and scratched my head a little bit more, and I came back having thought about it a little bit more, and I think it was about 2006 or something. I don't know. I got quite close to employee ownership then, and then we had also... Then we had the financial crisis, and we had an IT crisis and the business anyway went on hold until, again, until about... So I, I suppose I have been thinking about it for quite a long time, and I've been thinking about it. I just don't... I suppose my politics are are definitely left of centre. I don't, you know, I don't completely um, reject capitalism, uh, but I... Yeah, anyway, I, I just... I, th- I think social fairness... You know, I, I actually I think it goes hand in hand with environmentalism. I, I don't think we'll solve our environmental problems whilst there is such a grotesque inequality of um, wealth, and while you know we just the aspiration is just to get rich and richer, led on by a few greedy individuals at the top. And then I can't remember. I met Stuart Hampson, who was the chair of John Lewis at the. Uh, presented me with an award many years ago and and we started talking about it and he said yeah you really should think about this and he actually sent down a bloke from uh Waitrose, John Lewis to um talk to us and anyway in the end in 2016 after a lot of filming and ahhing we became employee owned um I sold 74% of the shares to the staff at about a quarter of what the accountants told me the business was worth but that still amounted to I think it was about five or six million rather than the 22 million they said it was worth. Uh, And at that time, I thought, well, what on earth can I do with four million quid? (laughs) 
However, I, you know, had I had the 20 million quid, I have no, I would not, you know, I wouldn't be any happier and I probably wouldn't have, I, you know, I don't, I don't regret any of it. And I'm absolutely delighted the way Riverford has developed since becoming employee owned. Um, and they have a meaningful say in the decisions that are made within the business. They really do through an elected staff, um, uh, elected co-owner council. Yeah, so sharing in the profits and having um, some say in, in how the business is run and, and how its strategy is going forward. It is. I think it's been really, really good. I have My only reservation about it really is how we maintain an innovative culture which I, I do have some concerns about. But actually, I don't think it's fair to blame that on employee ownership. You'd think the more you consult, the less innovative you're going to be. I think that is probably a fair. You can. I think it's something maybe it has a little bit to do with, you know, everyone being a little bit worried about what everyone else thinks, which is a good thing. You know, mostly it's a good thing. But sometimes when you have to think about a decision from so many different angles, you know, how it's going to be perceived, I think that can curb the um curb the appetite for doing new things and part of that could be the consultation and the employee and i think part of it is just getting bigger you know we're a thousand people now and and the, you know need more systems so that's my only slight reservation and i do think it's something that we can resolve based on our experience today i am definitely an advocate of employee ownership and yes you know I'd have another 10 million quid if I'd gone down another route but I don't think I would take such pleasure in going in and you know seeing what's going on on the farm and the responsibility that people are taking for the decisions locally and so on. I grew up in a household with a dad who kind of believed that everyone could do anything as long as they had the right attitude he gave people a huge amount of autonomy. I mean, you might say he threw them in at the deep end and left them to drown. And I guess that's what I grew up with, this sort of assumption that, I don't know, most people did want to do a good job and the um, best thing was to get out of the way and let them get on with it. I think I probably inherited a lot of his behaviours. Te- I tend to go probably too quickly towards the, oh, just get on with it. But that is generally how I manage people. I just say, look, this is what we want to achieve. And as far as possible, I'm going to leave you to just get on and do it the way that you see fit. In most cases, I think giving them an opportunity to use their own sort of innovation, creativity, you know, agency, I think the benefits of that are bigger, are more than the costs. I hate structure. I think I'm quite anarchic myself. I probably thrive in a sort of chaos. I like figuring out new ways of doing things every year every day actually so I'm not um whereas most people I think progress through iterative experimentation and improvement and that's how a lot of improvement and, and I'm not very good at that I mean I, I will have a rough idea of how I think it should be organized but the, the actual shape of it is formed by the people that are around and that it, and it's quite a fluid thing and, and I think there's a lot of sort of creativity in that rather than having this rigid model that everyone has to sort of fit into I just don't think that's the human condition I don't think that's how we work I know that sometimes you know as businesses get bigger it's you know it's very hard not to have more formal structures and that's what I found at Riverford in the end I I kind of excluded myself I think because I don't I don't perform well in that 
environment and I'd created something that which, you know, and I think it was absolutely right that I sold it to the staff and took a step back when I did. And it's now a very much more structured environment. And, oh, I don't know, there are problems with that. Um, some people are very happy with it. Some people are. I think my concern is that with all those structures that you get a, you lose a kind of innovative culture. And I think that may prove uh, to be quite problematic. I'm wondering whether my last act <laughs> in, uh, you know, in my, uh, you know, 35 years with Riverford um, may be to try and ensure that I, that, that we don't become too systems driven and that we leave space for individuality. I realised I just couldn't work for anyone else. You know, I tried and um, I just, I'm too bloody minded and independent and and innovative and have lots of ideas. And if I can't put them into practice, I'm going to get quite frustrated. So I knew I had to, you know, I had to make a living. I knew I had to, I had to have my own business and do it my own way. And I knew, having spent two hours, two years sitting in an office, that I needed to be outside. And I was very lucky in a way that I stumbled on vegetables <laughs> because I used to help my mum in the garden, but we didn't really grow vegetables. But when I came back from being a management consultant, I'd been in New York and uh, I, 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 um, I know people were starting to talk about organic and particularly organic vegetables. And I just decided that that looked like a growth market as a management consultant. We'd always been looking for growth markets. And that's what I decided to do. And I think I was incredibly lucky just stumbling on my thing because I just love growing vegetables. I mean, I do, you know, 35 years later, I'm every bit as enthusiastic. I found more enthusiastic than I was when I started. So no sign of it wearing out. I sort of stumbled into it that way. But what really drove me on, and I have no doubt about this, and I've heard many people say the same thing, was a subconscious but very strong desire for the approval of others in particular, my father. And I think that is uh, very, very common. So really, a lot of entrepreneurial drive comes out of insecurity. But if you go to Murdoch, you wouldn't scrape underneath the surface, you will find a basically very insecure individual. You know, there, there's, there's something a little bit missing. There's a hole in them somewhere that they're trying to, um, trying to fill. And uh, that's normally what drives them on in a way that other people who are probably much more sorted out <laughs> to whoever you know more content within themselves and more resolved probably nicer people you know won't make it as entrepreneurs you need you need it's a kind of madness um that drives people on and dyslexia is also <laughs> very common as well that sort of combat I don't know don't know whether it's that we have our brains wired differently in some ways but I mean in my generation you know when dyslexia wasn't really acknowledged no one told me I was dyslexic. I don't even don't think I'd even heard the word until I was 30, probably certainly late 20s. I just had awful handwriting, couldn't spell, was really slow. And my children begged me not to read them bedtime story. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, I mean, I was very, very dyslexic to the point where I wrote from right to left for my, you know, and I, but the interesting thing is that no teacher could tell me that I should write from left to right. I was also just bloody pig-headed and stubborn you know the whole neurodiverse thing it's become almost sort of fashionable hasn't it which I think is brilliant actually I, I just do just 
accepting that difference, I think, is one you know thing that uh, definitely a step forward into being you know, over generations. Even if you're just growing the same crops, essentially in the same way, every year is different and you have to find a solution. And, you know, even, you know, it's how you plough the field or indeed whether you don't plough the field this year or, you know, and cultivate it some other way or, you know, when it's ready to go and, and uh, oh, you know, it's too late to sow that, better sow something else. You're, you're, you know, there's this kind of matrix of decisions to be made all the time. And, uh, you know, it's, that's, you know, quite exciting. I mean, again, uh, it's also exhausting. I'm fortunate that I can grow, I can grow things in different ways and not worry too much about, you know, certainly it's, I have to be able to see a path that this might be economically viable at some point, probably in my lifetime. <laughs> uh, I'm not interested in doing things as a hobby, but, you know, I've spent the last two years planting a lot of walnuts and hazelnuts uh, and a few chestnuts and, you know, the risks in that you know of doing it wrong having the wrong variety planting them in the wrong way pruning them in the wrong way planting them on the field that I can't get harvesting equipment onto that there'd be no market for them that they'll get some terrible disease you know there's no end of you know potentials or risks that I couldn't honestly go to a cash strap farmer and say you should plant walnuts I mean my role is to is to try and reduce some of those risks to a point at which I hope other farmers will, it will be, have an acceptable kind of risk profile for other farmers to come into it. The why is to be useful, and that comes directly from my father, probably both my parents actually, you know, who were demobbed after the Second World War. They were both fairly upper middle class, you know, privileged people who parents grew up in the colonies and it was a time of huge social change they wanted to do something useful and that's why they went into farming it was you know so tangibly what the use was especially when you know they went into farming in the 50s when we were still in food rationing so I know exactly what I mean by useful and it can be applied to in a very broad way it can be socially useful it can be environmentally useful you know and and it's just got at the end of the day whatever you've done you've kind of left the world or your bit of the world a little bit better than it was or hopefully no worse hopefully a bit better so why organic um i have to say initially it was it was that i thought there was a growing market for it you know that was my management consultant speaking but as i've i find it now when i see my neighbor but this time of year they've all been out spraying off ready to plant their maize and you see that field slowly going yellow it's like watching someone being strangled you know it's an act of sort of brutality it makes me unhappy it makes me miserable I hate seeing it I would never want to do that myself one of my neighbors I walked across his field you know and all the stinging nettles had gone like that and the docks had gone like that you know he just sprayed it off with azulox and uh, I don't know it just think I thought oh god this is a lovely day I might have just actually lay down in this field and you know eaten an apple or smoked a cigarette or something it's full of fucking toxic chemicals it's just I don't know anyway that's just not how I want to farm and I suppose over the years and that and getting a greater appreciation which I still think even after 35 years I'm still learning of you know what makes for a healthy soil over the years I've just wanted to farm more and more you know in harmony with nature and initially that was organic and I don't think organic is has all the answers and I don't think it's the only 
solution. I do think, I still think, even with all the hype around regenerative agriculture, I think it's the best show in town because it has a legal definition and it's not subject to marketing bullshit, um, which I'm afraid there is a lot of that around. People have been trying to grow cereals, you know, seeded into cover crops and all the sort of things that, you know, regenerative, you know, there are plenty of people who have been quietly trying to do that and figure out how to do it for 20 years. They haven't had a word for it. They haven't built a brand around it, but they're quietly getting on doing it. And you know what? They're a damn sight better at it than most people who call themselves regenerative. So you can probably tell that I do all the hype around it. I do find quite irritating. I mean, there is an argument from what they're doing, which I do support, is that, you know, you have to give the farmer a market for the product, <laughs> you know, in order to, you know, because you probably are, you're going to have to pay them a premium for growing it in that way. So you've got to develop the market. Uh, and perhaps that is an argument for some, let's say, graying of the truth. I, do, I think putting putting sort of marketing ahead of the reality of farming is uh, it's going to upset quite a lot of people, me included, I'm afraid. I think there always have been a significant number of people who wanted to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Uh, they haven't been as vocal as they are now, um, and probably because it wasn't seen as a way of making money. <laughs> it was seen as something that people just wanted to get on and do, uh, you know, and mostly they did it in a quiet and sometimes very effective way. So I do... I um I sort of feel that the desire has always been there in a significant number of people, but clearly it's surfaced a lot more, you know, probably as a result of, you know, the biodiversity and climate change crisis. Because all these issues are so complicated, it really leaves us wide open to... Um, those are our guinea fowl in the back. <laughs> it it leaves, leaves us wide open to it being corrupted, you know, the people making you know, making a few sort of little claims and then assuming that everyone will assume you're doing the right thing, you know, outside of that. I don't think it helps to be sceptical, but I, I do really I think we should be a little bit wary of some of the people that are trying to build brands around whether it's carbon trading or regenerative agriculture. You know, there are some of them which are, I'm afraid, complete charlatans. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm sorry. I'm really not. You know. Sorry to all you younger listeners, but it is, it's, um, you know, we are. We're probably fucked, aren't we? But I, I'm, I'm, you know, I wake up every day and it's not long before I'll think that and I find it very upsetting. You know, I love our country. I love nature and, and you know, just to be destroying it in such a bloody ignorant you know we're so clever but you know lacking the wisdom to use our our sort of cleverness i you know no i i don't have very much hope however you know i would rather go down you know feeling i've done my bit and and made whatever effort i can you know personally and you know with the businesses that i can have influence over then well you can you can there are lots of reasons for optimism most people want to be part of the um solution rather than part of the problem and I think given good leadership would be prepared to tolerate you know, there will be some sacrifices pretty bloody marginal 